Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we are starting a new series of episodes on politics in the 1850s in California. We'll be looking at Republicans, Democrats, and know-nothings before moving on more properly to the Civil War. Let's get started. Today is the first part in a three-part series on politics in the 1850s and early 1860s in California. Beginning with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and extending through the end of the Civil War, the purpose of these three episodes is to track the political evolution of California during its early days and its formation as a state, and then extending forward to its participation and transformation during the Civil War itself. After the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, California was under military rule, which means that there was effectively no politics in a certain sense. Instead, we have informal politics, like we discussed in the fascinating interview with Andrea McDowell, where community conflict and disputes were settled using informal systems, like democratically run meetings at mining camps. The next major event, in political development was the constitutional convention called by civil governor Bennett Riley, who we discussed in a previous episode. This constitutional convention was held in Monterey in an attempt to create a document that could be used as part of their proposal for statehood. Let's briefly pause here to discuss this process of being admitted as a state. I will fully admit that this is a process that was somewhat cloudy in my mind. I knew from history education that there were territories, these territories could apply for statehood, and that Congress played a role in voting for admission. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you much. Here's the actual text from the Constitution describing this particular power and process, coming from Article 4, Section 3, quote, New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union. But no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. The Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. And nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or any particular state, end quote. That was a lot, but let's get into it. There are two main types of admissions to the Union that were described here, creating a secondary state from within a state and then admitting territories. In theory, you could make or take part of California, like the Central Valley, for example, amputate it and make a new state, which I'll call Fresno land, for example. That's one possible admission. The first thing you would need to do is get approval through some means of the state legislator voting. Once state-level approval was received, then you could start the process of creating a new state in the usual manner. The other situation, and the more common situation, is with a territory. The process for territories to be admitted as states was hammered hammered out in the Northwest Ordinance. The principles were originally outlined by Jefferson in 1784, but were clarified and cleared up in the Ordinance of 1787. Here are the three main stages, quote, a congressionally appointed governor, secretary, and three judges to rule in the first phase. Then, 
an elected assembly and a one non-voting delegate to Congress to be elected in the second phase when the population of the territory reached 5,000 free male inhabitants of full age. And finally, a state constitution to be drafted and membership to the union to be requested in the third phase when the population reached 60,000. The first two stages were setting up the conditions, and then once that 60,000 mark was reached, that actually got the ball rolling. Not that there were lots of cases in the U.S. where some of these conditions were not met. For example, where sometimes the number of residents was exaggerated, but mostly this was how the process worked. Hopefully, that was some sufficient background to this admission process. As we discussed on the last episode, California's admission to the Union brought controversy because it threatened to upset the balance of slave and free states. We won't dwell on that for now, but instead we will return momentarily to the Constitutional Convention that preceded admission. One of the key takeaways from the Constitutional Convention was the definition of who should be included as a citizen. Whiteness was quickly demarcated as the indicator of one's inclusion in that protected category. The one compromise concerning whiteness and who should be included was related to Californios, who were labeled in the Constitution as, quote, white male citizens of Mexico, end quote. This was a compromise in so many words, but what was not willingly compromised was in regards to African Americans. The proposal to exclude African Americans from California was shot down in large part because it might have theoretically impeded California's bid for statehood. This wasn't some moral high ground, but instead convenience to ensure that California would be included in the union. We're now moving on to discussing the history of different political groups within California, starting with the Know Nothing Party which was a force of nativism in California in the 1850s and which experienced a decline in the mid to late 1850s. The rise of this nativist political party corresponded with the arrival of Irish and German immigrants to the U.S. in the 1840s, which stoked a fire of nascent anti-Catholicism. Before we go forward any more in California, let's break down some of the central tenets of nativism as well as give some brief history. The first tenet is that foreign-born immigrants to the United States are not fit for citizenship until such a time that the lingering effects and beliefs of their home of residence have worn off. This is the belief that undergirds many of the waiting periods in the process for naturalization in the United States. There are other reasons for a wait time, but I'd argue that this is the central philosophical determinant for why wait periods are so long not just the bureaucratic nightmare that it is applying for citizenship in the United States. The second belief, which is perhaps just a natural correlate of the first belief, is that Roman Catholics are not fit to be citizens because of their subservience to a foreign potentate, also known as the Pope, or more broadly, the Catholic Church hierarchy. Now, there have been spikes of nativism throughout U.S. history, particularly during periods of conflict like the War of 1812. The Hartford Convention, a forgotten political event that likely caused the downfall of the Federalist Party, considered excluding all foreign-born individuals from the ability to hold civil offices. There are a few other episodes, including a vice presidential candidate withdrawing his name from a political ticket after nativist pushback, 
but mostly efforts were put toward extending that waiting period for foreign-born individuals in seeking citizenship. Additionally, Catholic schools were often the targets of attack, which were viewed as institutions whose designs were on solidifying the subservience of American-born citizens to the Catholic Church. The first national nativist party was called the Native American Party, a name that has so many layers of irony to it that it is hard to know where to begin to deconstruct the various layers of meaning. After some modest electoral success, the Native American Party held a national convention on July 4, 1845, and called for a second one in Pittsburgh in 1847. But by the time that second convention was set to roll out, a lot of fervor around Native issues had simmered out. The reasons being that uh, other major events came to dominate the attention of the nation, like the Mexican-American War, the expansion and threat of slavery, the free soil movement, the gold rush, etc. The nativist fever then moved to the underground world of secret organizations that have come to be lumped together into a general movement that has been assigned the know-nothing party name, even though some of these early organizations wouldn't identify that way. Of these secret organizations, the first and most relevant for our discussion is the Order of United Americans. The membership of the OUA grew as the membership of the Native American Party declined. This secret organization had a convoluted leadership structure that I will not waste your brain cells or mind trying to explain. Essentially, the main and most important activity for the organization was electoral. Without openly endorsing candidates, the OUA wanted to influence the voting choices of its members and direct them to preferred politicians. The OUA continued to operate while building towards another nativist moment in U.S. history. This period of time corresponded with the famous potato famine that caused an influx of Irish immigrants to come to the United States, many of them, or almost all of them, being both Catholic and foreign-born. Another organization popped up during this period called the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. This group had many of the same principles and goals of the OUA, and newspapers began to refer to them in particular as the Know-Nothings, which stuck even after they changed their name to the American Party. This political party kept expanding until its roles said that they had a million and a half registered members, which is roughly 5% of the U.S. population. But enough context, let's get back to California. The Know Nothing Party began to move forward in California in May of 1854 in San Francisco. They were looking for opportunities in the political milieu where California Democrats, who we'll cover in detail in our next episode, controlled politics at such a high level that they actually began to split into factions themselves. Meanwhile, this control with little opposition for Democrats meant that the political sphere, as this always happens, was rife with corruption. The other player here, in terms of political parties, and remember this is before the Republican Party has come onto the scene, was the Whig Party. The Whig Party was the party of the middle classes, social reformers, some Protestants, and particularly urban residents. The Know-Nothings saw this infighting within the Whig Party, as well as within the Democrats, as an opportunity. 
They pitched themselves in California as reformers who wanted to weed out corrupt politicians who were lining their pockets. Some people lined up for their nativist dogma, but others just saw them as a group that would finally go after the corrupt politicians in California who were lining their pockets. They were viewed, ultimately, as a tool to clean house. The Know Nothing supported politicians who were running under other parties' tickets, but were friendly to their beliefs. They also opposed candidates, like a potential candidate for San Francisco mayor, who was Roman Catholic. There was a lot of convoluted electioneering that went on in this first major election that Know Nothings were part of in 1854 in San Francisco, but we don't have time to get into it here. Suffice it to say, they were involved and they were expanding. They quickly moved from their relatively new home base in San Francisco across the entire state, including, in a major way, in four of the largest population centers in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, Marysville, and Stockton. The various chapters of the Know Nothings attracted members in each of these centers and began to fill local election tickets with Know Nothing politicians. We'll conclude this episode by discussing J. Neely Johnson, who had become California's governor from 1856 to 1858 and represented the peak of electoral success for the Know Nothings in California. Johnson was born into a family of prominent Whigs in Indiana. He wanted to go to college, but a financial downturn prevented that. He worked as a printer before pursuing law. He immigrated to California, like everyone else, seeking riches, and ended up working odd jobs before setting up his legal practice in Sacramento. Johnson was elected to the California Assembly as a Whig in 1852, but switched his allegiance, probably out of expedience, to the Know Nothing Party when the Whig Party began to collapse over internal disputes caused by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. In 1855, the Know Nothings, seeing blood in the water with major divisions in both national parties, saw their opportunity to take advantage and attain state-level office. Jane Neely Johnson was elected as governor of California in 1855, along with a wave of major offices for the Know Nothing Party. Next time, we will conclude the Know Nothing Party's time in California by looking at Johnson's administration before moving on to discussing the Democratic Party in California, and then finally, in our third episode, the emergence of the Republican Party in California. We'll see you next time.